Well, hello, friends. Grace and peace of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, be with you. Welcome to Sermons from the Mount podcast. My name is Pastor Mark O'Neill. I currently serve as the pastor of Mount Olivet United Methodist Church in Manio, North Carolina. Each week, we will post here audio recordings of the sermons that I preach from that church. Hope this one is a blessing to you. God bless. Take care. Friends, our sermon text this morning comes from Luke's Gospel. We're in the ninth chapter, and we're going to take a look at verses 28 through 43. So again, this is Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through It says, now about eight days after these sayings, he, Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and, I, I will, and, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. My friends, this is the word of God for you and I, the children of God. Thanks be to God. On Saturday, March the 4th, 1738, John Wesley wrote these words in his journal. I found my brother at Oxford recovering from his pleurisy and with him, Peter Bowler. By him and the hand of the great God, I was on Sunday the 5th clearly convinced of my unbelief, of the want of that faith whereby alone we are saved. Immediately it struck into my mind, leave off preaching. 
How can you preach to others, you who have not faith yourself? I asked Bowler whether he thought I should leave it off or not. He answered, by no means. I asked, but what can I preach? He said, preach faith till you have it. And then because you have it, you will preach faith. Preach faith till you have it, and then because you have it, you will preach faith. I want you to think about that for a moment. Because here we have one of the great reformers of the church. A practical theologian whose sermons and teachings and thoughts led to the formation of one of the world's largest denominations. A man graduated from Oxford, ordained as a priest in the Church of England. A man that had traversed the Atlantic Ocean to preach to the American colonies and had covered most of England as well. The son of a preacher the brother of one of the most influential hymn writers the world has ever known. And yet this same man, in visiting with a friend and colleague, admits to thinking, maybe I shouldn't be preaching because he wasn't sure of his own faith, not sure of his beliefs, not sure of where he stood with God, and dare I say, maybe not sure of where God stood with him. We'll come back to the Reverend Wesley here in a minute. But first, I want to talk about what's going on in our lesson this morning from Luke. Our first line tells us that Jesus has brought with him Peter, John, and James up a mountain eight days after these sayings. Now, the Gospel of Mark has the exact same telling of this exact same story, except he says it was after six days. But I thought we should maybe stop for a minute and ask, well, after what sayings? What exactly did Jesus say that they're referencing here? Well, if we go back earlier in the Gospels, what we see is that in this point in his ministry, Jesus has given the disciples power to cast out demons and cure disease. That becomes important a little bit later. The miracle of the 5,000 has already happened. Jesus and the disciples have had this discussion about who do people say that I am, and Peter confesses that to him, he is the Christ which also becomes important here in a second, at which time Jesus tells the disciples about his coming death and resurrection. And then Jesus gives to them and us the instructions that if anyone is to truly follow him, that we must deny ourselves and pick up our crosses. We must lose our desire for worldly lives and not be ashamed of Jesus' cross-bearing way. Jesus gives the boys about a week or so to mull this over. And then he takes them up the mountain. While Jesus was praying, we are told his appearance changed. That's what the word transfiguration means. It's a complete change of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. For Jesus, his clothing and complexion were surrounded and filled with a magnificent glory that had not been seen by mortal man since God's glory left the temple in Ezekiel's day. This description harkens back to the, uh, of what Moses looked like after he met with God that we read about in Exodus 34. And then Moses and Elijah show up. I don't have to tell you, they represent both the law and the prophets, and they are both here to testify to the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah. According to the law given to Moses and the words of all the prophets, 
of whom Elijah is the greatest. What they are both pointing to is that Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise, every word, every expectation that God has ever given to his beloved sons and daughters. The three of them we read are said to be talking. And I've always wondered, I wonder what it was that they were talking about. You ever wonder that? Well, imagine my surprise this week when reading this text from the upteenth time, we are told exactly what it is that they are talking about. It says that they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They were talking about the last days of Jesus' earthly ministry. The journey up this mountain will soon be repeated with a trip up another mountain called Calvary. We can talk about Palm Sunday being the start of Holy Week, and it is, but my friends, this is where the journey to the cross begins. This is the culminating moment in the redemptive history of our world. The law and the prophets have all led right here to what it is God is going to do for his people. The fact that Jesus' coming death is preceded here by glory assures the disciples there to see it, as well as you and I some 2,000 years later, of what God's purpose in Jesus is. And that purpose is to establish a way for you and I to have a relationship with God for all eternity. Think back to the 2 Corinthians passage that Paul read a few minutes ago. When we turn to the Lord, when we turn to Jesus, whatever veil we have that has been covering our eyes, our hearts, our minds from truly seeing God, from understanding God, from seeing God's presence, that veil is removed. And with that veil removed, you and I have a chance to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, step by step, one degree at a time, into the men and women that God intends for us all to be. Moses led Israel out of Egypt to the Promised Land. Elijah and all the prophets spoke of the coming Messiah that would do the same thing at even greater. And now, in Jesus, on this mountain, we see the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And Peter sees all of it. Now, depending on your translation, he was either sleepy or he was asleep, but he is wide awake now. And imagine what he sees. The glory of the Lord shining in the face and clothes of Jesus. Standing with Moses and Elijah. He knew the scriptures. He knew exactly who those two fellows were. I mean, Moses had been dead around 1,400 years. Elijah had been taken up to heaven for about 900 years. And now here they stand with Jesus. Can we all agree that for Peter, this is very much a mountaintop experience? Can you imagine what is going through his heart and his mind at this moment? And so he tells Jesus, just as Moses and Elijah are walking away, Jesus, let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He might be. And he's also wrong. For at least two reasons. First, when he suggested building three tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah, he seems to have forgotten the confession that he had made just eight days before. 
Jesus said, who do those folks say that the Son of Man is? And they all said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Then he says, well, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And with this confession, he places Jesus far above Moses or Elijah. And yet now... He suggests making a tent for Jesus and one for Moses, one for Elijah, putting Jesus now on the same level as these two men. Are you guilty of that? Are there voices in your life or people in your life or things in your life that you put on the same level as Jesus? Things that to you are as important as Jesus? Or dare I say, things in your life that are maybe more important than Jesus? Peter's second mistake is this. By offering to make these tents, Peter is indicating what? That he wants to stay a while. He wants to enjoy this just a little bit more. And honestly, can you blame him? I pray that all of you have had experiences of being so close to God, so overwhelmed by His presence that you did not want it to end. Experiencing awe and wonder and just wanting to stay in it as long as you can. But friends, we can't. We have to come down that mountain sooner or later, don't we? We can't hoard all this glory for ourselves. If we truly believe in the great commission to go and make disciples, friends, we can't do that if we stay on the mountain. We have to come down. In our text it says that a cloud comes rolling in, and anytime you see something about a cloud rolling in, that's indicative of the presence of God. And God surrounds them and he tells them, listen, this is my son. This is my chosen one. Listen to him. The cloud disappears and Elijah and Moses are gone. What God is telling Peter is this, friend, there is no other. I didn't ask you to build any tents. I asked you to listen to him. This one, this son, this chosen, this is the one. All attention should be directed to him. He will lead the people to salvation because he has my divine endorsement. Again, friends, I have to ask, who do you listen to? Who has your ear? Who do you go to for advice and counsel? So they come down the mountain. They come down the mountain and there's a problem. A crowd gathers around Jesus and a man comes with his son and says that the boy is possessed by an unclean spirit, that he has begged the disciples to cast it out, and they couldn't. And so Jesus says, oh, faithless and twisted generation. Y'all think we currently live in a faithless and twisted generation? Well, friends, here's the thing. Jesus wasn't speaking to the crowd here. He wasn't talking to the gathered masses. He was talking to his disciples. These men that had followed him around for three years, 
that he had given all authority and power to do the very thing that this man begged them to do for his son, these are the ones that Jesus is calling faithless and twisted. Well, my commentary said that this rebuke from Jesus suggests that they lack the faith to cast out the unclean spirit. Let me say that again. Jesus' chosen disciples, the ones that he has made apostles, lacked faith. Maybe this is why Peter didn't want to come down the mountain. When we come down that mountain after an experience from which we feel the presence of God, what we oftentimes find is that our faith is challenged. That our faith is tested. And no matter how strong we may think we are, no matter how much we may love our Jesus, no matter how much we may love our church, no matter how many Bible studies or book studies or small groups we attend, no matter how strong or weak your faith may be, friends, each one of us is going to have that moment where our faith is challenged, where our faith is shaken, where we have doubts and questions. might be the loss of a job, might be a divorce, might be a medical diagnosis, might be the loss of a spouse, a parent, or a child, difficulties with a loved one or friend, an addiction you can't shake, a memory you can't forget, or a person you can't forgive. It happens, friends, to all of us. You will have times where your faith is challenged and tested, it certainly happened to John Wesley, didn't it? If we go back to our journal entry I read a few minutes ago, we don't know exactly what it is that happened that caused him to question his faith. We don't know exactly what it was that caused him to proclaim a lack of faith, but we know that something must have challenged him. Something happened to make him part of what Jesus would call a faithless and twisted generation, didn't it? And I have no doubt that many times before this occasion, Wesley had experiences with the risen Lord that he found to be transformative and awe-inspiring. Yet, friends, here he is at the bottom of the mountain with his faith being challenged, his own faith being questioned. And this morning, my dear sisters and brothers, if this has or is happening to you, consider yourself to be in pretty good company. And hear me this morning when I tell you that challenges to your faith or doubts or concerns or questions do not make God love you any less. Does not make you any less beloved in God's eyes. Does not prevent God from reaching out to you, beckoning you to come to him. So what then do we do when this happens to us? Wesley's friend told him, just go preach it until you have it, and then you'll be preaching it. I don't know if that's necessarily good advice for us, but I think the path forward is to do exactly what it is that God tells Peter to do in this passage. When we find our faith challenged, or we have questions, or we have doubts, or we have struggles, what we do is we listen to Jesus. And here's what Jesus tells us. Now, this same story, again, is repeated in Mark's gospel. It's not necessarily word for word, verse for verse, but it's very close, and it contains this little nugget 
that is not in our account from Luke. You see, after Jesus heals this boy and gives him back to his dad, and they go off, and the disciples and Jesus find time together alone, they want to know, Jesus, how come we couldn't do it? Why were we not able to cast out this unclean spirit? And Jesus tells them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Other translations say prayer and fasting. Now, not to be outdone, Matthew also has this scene in his gospel, and the answer that he states Jesus gives to the disciples is that they couldn't cast it out because of their little faith. So what you and I can gather from these passages, friends, is that if we seek God in a season of prayer, faith will result. If we seek God in a season of prayer, faith will result. If you find your faith challenged, pray. If you find that you have doubts, pray. If you find that you have questions, pray. Perhaps the advice that Wesley should have been given was, pray until you have faith. Then when you have it, you will pray faithfully. My study Bible also says this, and it's better than anything I could possibly write. It says, disciples are not necessarily protected from various effects of the fall, including sickness, oppression, suffering, and the various other difficulties of life. Prayer and even faith are gifts of God through which Christ's disciples draw near to God in trust and surrender. We depend on our Lord, knowing that the struggle against spiritual and human opposition to His reconciling purposes has by no means ceased in our day. A disciple's own physical well-being may or may not be sustained. But whatever happens to us, we remember that Christ has died and risen again. And we are eternally united to Him who now sits at God's right hand. Our final glory and rest are assured. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 says this, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Friends, God is always going to be near us. This morning, whatever it is that is in your heart or your mind that troubles you or has you doubting or has you questioning, take comfort in knowing that we do not have an absentee creator. We do not have a distant Savior. And we do not have a hands-off Holy Spirit. The one that has complete control over all aspects of creation has come to restore every one of us. And take us all to himself. So friends, pray, pray, pray. Brothers and sisters, seek his glory. Share his goodness. Pray without ceasing. Listen to him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.
Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Until next time, God bless. Take care.